What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. One of the significant information literacy skills I teach my college students is information evaluation. As an educator, I found that in this day and age, it's never too early to teach children how to critically look at information and evaluate it. The strategies of information evaluation require us to understand where information comes from and to determine if it's reliable or not. At the very earliest ages, the way to start this process is to help children understand that information has a creator or a source. Helping them to identify who the author of a book is and then taking it a step further to help them discover more about the author through the information given in the book or through other sources like websites helps children to begin to develop an understanding of author authority. Another first step is to help children learn how to identify places that show where the author got their information. Pointing out things like bibliographies or lists of further readings, as well as author acknowledgments, help children begin to understand that there are ways to verify information for reliability. As children grow, we can expand their understanding to other formats and sources. For example, helping teenagers understand how the Internet structures and conveys information is an important part of helping them to navigate their online lives. At this level, we can also help teenagers understand more complex topics like author bias or how to negotiate multiple perspectives. There's a lot of information online that can help adults teach these skills, and it's a good way to practice your own information evaluation skills by looking for sites with .org, .edu, or .gov extensions for authoritative and accurate information. Also, companies like Scholastic and organizations like the American Library Association and the National Council of Teachers of English offer great online resources to help children build these skills. While these kinds of resources are directed mostly at teachers and librarians, they certainly can be adapted for use in our home, or at the very least help you as an adult understand the complexities of information evaluation, because here at Rachel's World, we believe that learning about things is always time well spent. Where does creative inspiration come from? Today on Worlds Awaiting, children's book author Marilyn Singer talks with Rachel about her inspiration when creating a book. Singer is known also for touching a variety of subjects, from animals to schools to aliens. She's also invented a thingamajig that she calls a reverso poem, and we'll be learning about that. Singer is the winner of the 2015 National Council of Teachers of English Award for Excellence in Poetry. She has over 100 books to her credit. She's also the creator of five picture books featuring Tallulah, a young ballet student. Here's Marilyn Singer and Rachel Wadham. We're on the phone today with Marilyn. Welcome, Marilyn. Hello. I'm pleased to be here. Well, I am so excited for us to chat today and for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. They probably know you from some of your excellent books and your excellent poetry, but I am so excited for them to get to know you a little bit more personally. So maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, talk a little bit about what it is you write. You write quite a lot of different things, so maybe talk a little bit about the different kinds of things that you write. 
Well, I've written at this point more than 100 books, which uh, my husband always brags about. <laughs> he always says, she's written more than 100 books. And they're actually in many, many different genres. Um, I, I like to, I like the word versatile, actually. That, you know, if you want to pay me a compliment, that's one of the best things you could actually say to me. Um, it prevents me from getting bored, and uh, it gives me an opportunity to, to challenge myself to write in these different genres. Um, so I've written novels, I've written nonfiction, I've written a lot of poetry, I'm probably best known for that, uh, also picture books, uh, short stories. I've edited, um, at this point, four short story collections, and uh, th that's it. I mean, really, a lot of different kinds of things. I always do say, though, that my favorite thing to write is poetry, and um, I started writing that when I was very, very young, and uh, it stuck. So those are uh, the, those are the, the different things that I um, that I work on. I would call you versatile, Marilyn. That that is very true. So I will I will give you that compliment because you are versatile, mm -hmm. and I like the fact that there really is a poem out there about everything, and mm -hmm. you're a great example of that. You write about everything from animals to schools to aliens to superheroes, all yeah. of those types of things. So how do you pick the the things that you write about? Well, that's that's an interesting question. For the most part, they are things that I've come up with. Occasionally, someone will suggest something else to me. For example, um, my book, Rutherford B., Who Was He?, is a collection of poems about presidents. That was not my idea. An editor asked me if I would write a book of poems about presidents. And at first I went, oh, goodness. I mean, really? I, I don't know anything about these men. And then um, I started doing research. And research is a big part of, of whatever I write, it, really. I mean, almost ev everything that I do requires some degree of research, even if it's a, a novel. It's, there's, there's generally something I have to look into. Um, so I started doing research on these presidents, and I got so excited that I wrote something like, I think, eight poems in a row. When I get really excited about a, a topic, that often happens. I just go nuts, and I just, you know, write one poem, and then another poem, and then another poem. and then. So that was suggested to me. But for the most part, I do come up with ideas on my own, and um, they come in different ways. I'll give you a couple of examples. I like to walk around a lot, and I try to be open to ideas. There, there have been times in my life when I feel like I've really got to make money and I've got to come up with an idea, and that almost never works. In other words, if I'm trying to force it, it, it generally does not work. But if I'm relaxed and I'm open, then often things will appear. They'll come to me. So, for example, one day I was at the Bronx Zoo, and I was in an aviary. They have a, they have a lot of different aviaries. This is a, an outdoor one, so it's only open in the warmer weather, and they have penguins in it. And there was a sign that said that one out of five penguin chicks survives because of the difficult habitat and the predators, uh, etc. And I, it, I wondered how many other animals survive in difficult habitats. And, th and then I started to research it, and that sparked a strange place to call home. And then we get to something like my reversos. Um, and probably I should explain what a reverso is, don't you think? Yes, please do, because I don't know if our listeners will be familiar with that, because you invented it. So this I is, think I did. I, 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 I think you, you know, did. We'll, we'll, I hope so. <laughs> we'll, we'll say you invented it, even okay, if you didn't. I, I will cautiously accept. <laughs> <laughs> the 
ownership of that. Um, so a reverso is one poem with two halves. You read the first half down the way you would most poems, and then you read the second half with the lines reversed, with changes only in punctuation and capitalization. And the second half has to say something completely different from the first half. So one day I was, um, I was, I was just sitting on my love seat, actually, in my living room, and my cat was sitting in the chair across from me, and this little poem came into my head, which was, A Cat Without a Chair, Incomplete. Incomplete, A Chair Without a Cat. And I got so excited when that popped into my head, I wondered, well, this is interesting. You know, I wonder if I could write more poems like that. So I did. Um, they were on a lot of different topics. I showed them to an editor, and she was very smart and said, well, you have a lot of poems here that are based on fairy tales. Why don't you base the entire collection on fairy tales? So... I thought that was really cool. It gave me the opportunity to read or reread fairy tales. I always loved them when I was a kid. That was one of my absolute favorite things to hear and to read. So I got to revisit those. And um, that led to my first book of reversos, Mirror, Mirror. And then the second book of reversos, Follow, Follow. And because those have done well, I've now done a third book, which is based on the Greek myths. And that's called... Echo, echo. And I also loved the Greek myths when I was a kid. So, again, I got an opportunity to, uh, to reread a lot of those. So there's, there's no one thing that will um, inspire a book. Uh, and that, to me, is something of a marvel. You know, the fact that if you are open, there are all kinds of possibilities out there. I love that sense of this things just appearing to you and being able to take something and see it in such a new way. That's one of the reasons I love the reversos, because it, it's essentially the same poem, but you see it from such distinct points of view mm-hmm. that it adds something and it even adds something to the fairy tale. You can see the other character's perspective in a really unique way. And I love that added depth and I think that's one of the things that poems really bring is just this added sense of depth and emotion and understanding that is really important to who we are as, as humans and, and part of the way we interact with the world. That's a lovely way to put it. I, I really like that, Rachel. Uh, I, I, I remember I was speaking to a class of, of kids, and they were young. And one of them, I asked them if they liked poetry, and one of them, you know, and, I, and they said yes. And I, I asked one of them, well, why do you like it? And he said, because it lets me express my emotions. And that was such a, uh, to me, such an amazing thing for a little boy to admit and to own and to like. So there is a real emotional uh, quality. To me, also, a lot of poems and a lot of my poems um, ask questions, which I then, then try to answer. They're questions that I really want the answers to, particularly the, my nature poems, I think have a, a lot of questions like that. So, um, and they also, I think poetry also can capture um, a moment in time the way a photograph can. So that's another quality that it has. And it's a lot of qualities to poetry, I think. I couldn't agree more. I think poetry has all of these beautiful qualities. Are you going to read some of your poems for us? Sure. Okay. This is the one that I, I usually read uh, to people 
to illustrate what a reverso is. Uh, it's called In the Hood. It's based on Little Red Riding Hood. The first speaker for the first half is Little Red, and you can guess who the second speaker is. In my hood, skipping through the wood, carrying a basket, picking berries to eat. Juicy and sweet. What a treat. But a girl mustn't dawdle. After all, Grandma's waiting. After all, Grandma's waiting mustn't dawdle. But a girl. What a treat. Juicy and sweet. Picking berries to eat. Carrying a basket. Skipping through the wood. In my hood. Bravo. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. Because I like to be like nice and evil. <laughs> I, li- I like that. You you bring the voices to it. it it's not just reading it. You've, you've got the voices down. <laughs> well, let me just, I want to just add one thing. We, yes, um, please. There are, there are audiobooks. I've do- I have done uh, two audiobooks, uh, Mirror, Mirror and Follow, Follow, with my amazing actor friend, Joe Morton. A lot of people know him from Scandal. Uh, and uh, we, we co-narrate, and we are going to do Echo Echo. Uh, Excellent. So, yeah, so that's really exciting. So Live Oak uh, Media has uh, produced those, and if anybody's interested, you can, you can find those and, and uh, listen to us. Uh, act out the poems. That is so excellent. I am very excited, for, especially for Echo Echo. That's going to oh, be yeah. wonderful. I, it'll, it'll be fun. Thank you, so <laughs> Thank much, you again, Rachel. Marilyn. That was Rachel Wadham with children's book author Marilyn Singer talking about her creative process when writing books and poems. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Next, Rachel talks to art educators Scott and Callie Flocks. Scott teaches third grade at Canyon Rim Academy in Salt Lake City, Utah, where he incorporates the arts in his classroom. Callie is choreographer turned administrator. She's the founding director of the BYU Arts Partnership and the McKay School of Education at Brigham Young University. Scott and Callie both believe that the arts enhance a child's learning. Apart from their work as educators in schools, the Floxes also have children of their own and have made the arts an integral part of their own family's life experience. Rachel Wadham now visiting with Scott and Callie Flox. We're in studio today with Scott and Callie, both talented artists that I know very well. And they also have children who are talented artists. So we're going to discuss with them today a little bit about how do we do that as parents? How, how can their experience um, in their own lives as artists and then getting their children to be artists help us have art in our lives? So Callie, can you, can you start us out? How, how did you get your children to be artists? <laughs> you know, there's two areas you need to look at if you want to have these things as part of your family, both what happens inside your home as well as what happens in the community and in the schools. And making a deliberate plan in both areas is really important. So for us and our family, we always took our kids with us to work. So my children went to teach dance with me, and they went to uh, draw with Scott. And 
And we're both educators, and we had our children go with us out into the community and creating those things. And then in our home, we made an explicit attempt to always be doing things at home and to be sure that at our dinner table conversations, that the conversations were rich and full and that we took the time to listen to their artistic expressions. Living with a family artfully it isn't always just about creative, creating the artworks. It's about creating conversation that allow people to have individual ideas, individual opinions, and a, a time and a framework to express their voice. So listening and validating their experiences people is what helps them, our children, become artists. That, that's an interesting point, and I think that you created the environment. So, Scott, how do, you, how do you find that that environment impacted your kids? Tell us a little bit about what they're doing today in their own artful expressions. Well, when they were young, I mean, I used to draw with them all the time. So it was an interactive way of me doing something constructive with the kids. Uh, we'd build stuff with constructs. I mean, that whole level of part to whole, hold, hold, you know, hold apart, doing puzzles, doing things together that elicited brain development that made it easy to be an artist. Then when they showed an inclination to do something, if they wanted to play the guitar, I'd get them a guitar if they wanted it, which was their own. It wasn't, we didn't share stuff. I got them their own instruments that they were in charge of, you know, and responsible for. Uh, One of the kids got a drum set right off. Another kid got a good, really good guitar, and he just took off on that because it was a good instrument, and I played too. So, you know, it was just part of what we did. It wasn't separate of now we're going to do art today. It was just part of what we did. A lot of the books we read were about abstract thinking and artistic subjects and um, if we watch a movie we watch a lot of artistic movies uh, about abstract thinking and different ways of looking at things it was way more than just specific art forms yeah I think that's really important that particularly with most art forms there's lots of tools that you need to do them and that's one of the things my parents were really great at if we showed an inclination or an interest they would go out and get the tools to provide for us to be able to engage with that. But that develops its own challenges, right? There's cost considerations and, and, you know, if you buy something like an expensive guitar, you want kids to stick with it. So, Callie, how how do you address some of those kinds of tensions that that come with these needed tools to do some of these artistic endeavors? Well, it's all about prioritizing. And we have parents come to us all the time and say, well, I don't know if they're really going to stick with this, so I'm just getting this cheap guitar. You've just guaranteed they won't stick with it. Um, if pe- children don't have some uh, the opportunity to be successful, they're not going to continue. And the better quality tools and materials they have, the more successful they are. Well, we're both educators. This isn't. It ha- it has taken serious commitment in order to make those financial outlays, and that comes with what we value. And people would say, well, okay, so. You're educators. You don't make a ton of money. Don't you want your children to be able to make a living and and make more money? Why would you want them to be artists? We want them to think artfully. We want them to be sensitive citizens. We want them to have a broad understanding of the world around them. So our son, who's an engineer, when he talks about how his arts have changed him, his ability to communicate complicated engineering ideas in a room of clients is 
uh, superior to most of his colleagues because he got an English literature minor. And he can write, first of all, so his presentations are better. His, he has an understanding of visual arts, so his maps and his graphics and his designs, a few extra tweaks, and he'll have clients say, oh, my gosh, this is so much more clear for me to understand. He has an aesthetic way of doing his engineering. And that's the sensitivity that we were hoping to create for our children, so no matter what they did, they, they had those skills and tools to apply to their world. You know, it... It takes a lot of money to buy those nice instruments. That's where your question came from, and to be committed to those nice materials. But don't we want our children to know that they're worth that? And the value that you place on the skills that they build, we could spend our money on Xboxes and and other kinds of things. There's always something to spend your money on. But if you really know what you value, you'll find a way. And I think that's true. I've, I found that to be true in my own life, that the, the best quality that you can afford is is the best, particularly for these artistic forms, because you're right. If you buy the cheap stuff, you've already set them up for failure. And that's that is one of the main challenges of all this. But what are what is one of the other challenges, Scott, that you found in raising your family in this kind of artful way that that you found a way to address that you can share with our audience? I just found that without it myself, I would have never gotten through school. I've always taught guitar lessons, so it gave me a livelihood, you know, on top of teaching. Um, When I developed my own novels and novel studies in my classroom structure, it's always done through an artist's eyes. So there's no separation between the arts and what I do with my kids. And it's made me a better teacher. It's made the kids a much better students. So the value of it goes far beyond just playing a guitar or um, whatever it happens to be, a drummer or whatever, you know. And, and it also teaches you how to practice. It teaches you how to set high goals. Um, I mean, I play a lot of complicated guitar music that most people wouldn't even try because I keep trying to get better. Visual arts too. Uh, you know, our artists, kids are always doing weird. It's a progression. You know, they started with very f- tight line things, and now they're into more abstract things. The literature, you know, the literature they read too. I mean, it, it permeates everything they do. So it's not about art. It's about thinking and a lifestyle that happens to integrate into what they do. That's a really good point because I think these kind of artful thinking and the way we approach the world integrates into our whole lives. So, Kelly, what other kinds of blessings or benefits have you seen for your family in approaching your raising of your children in this way? We have ways of communicating that give me insights into my children that I wouldn't have any other way. Um, My son who lives in California came in town last weekend and, Mom, I have a new song for you. And he'd chosen this song that he came home to play for me. And that discussion about why he chose this song and what it meant to him, the poetry in it was beautiful. I got an understanding and an insight into my son that I would have never gotten through normal, uh, traditional kinds of conversations. When my friends come to me and say, oh, how do you do this? They think bringing the arts in their lives is making their children practice their instruments for 30 minutes a day. They think it's about the structure and the schedule. And it isn't. That's how I almost destroyed my relationship with my daughter was when I sat down and tried to make her practice. 
it's the artful way that we build relationships, and that's the richness of why we want the arts in our homes and the arts in our lives. That makes a lot of sense. Scott, if you could leave our audience with one thought today, what would it be? The arts teach you to think abstractly, out of the box, problem solve, all the practical things that employers are looking for nowadays, but you do it in a way where it's fun and tangible to them, and it makes them grow as people as well. That's wonderful. Callie, what about you? What would you like our audience to remember today? What we're trying to raise is citizens in a country that can self-actualize and know who they are and know what their voice is. And once people know what their voice is, they know how to interact with their community and build, connect to their community in meaningful ways and build strong communities and societies. What we want is a peaceful world with understanding where individuals can know who they are and know who other people are through empathy. And the arts are one of the best ways to create empathy. And in a family... That's the kind of people that I want to be around, and that's the kind of society I want to create. Me too. I agree with you totally, Callie. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today, Scott and Callie. Arts educators Callie and Scott Flox talking with Rachel Wadham about how they help their children engage with the arts in the home. Now we finish the show with kids from Wasatch Elementary in Provo, Utah. Clara Goodwin of the World's Awaiting Team chatted with them about the value they have discovered in reading. Why is reading fun? If you're just like bored and you have nothing to do, then you can just pull out a book of like whatever you want to read. Like it can be about anything you want really. Usually when you get into a book, you would really like to read more about it to find out what happens. When you start a book and you start learning, then it's hard to stop. Well, if you don't like it, you can just start reading books. And then once you find stuff that you like and you're interested in, you can find a book about that and it'll just be fun. You can just find a thing that's interesting and then it's just fun to read it. What are some activities you like to do when you're reading? A fun activity with my family is one person reads a page of a book then we ask them a question about the page and then it keeps going on in a circle mainly just imagine imagine about the book what's going to happen next sometimes what we do is we read like a chapter or two and then we try to summarize it the best we can what are some of your favorite characters from books in wonder i like the character august like the main character and how he like sees the world because he's disabled and is trying to prevent bullying and stuff because he gets bullied. Matt from Limit because he's just really funny in the book. Why is reading important in your life? Because I would like to learn more. Sometimes I like to look at the words in case I don't know how to pronounce it or I don't know how to spell it. When I go and learn more things with my dad, it helps to know some of the words that he uses. So I usually read a lot of realistic books. It's fun to learn but it's really fun just to read because it's creative and fun. It's helped me learn more words. How can reading help you learn? You can read interesting books about bugs or plants or animals or whatever, and it can teach you about them, and then once you see one of them, you can be like, oh, that's this, and say all about it. You can read to learn by like looking through the book, and if you see any words you don't really understand, you can maybe like look them up in the dictionary or ask someone that knows what they mean. 
If you have a friend or someone you know who doesn't like reading and you want them to like reading, what would you tell them? Probably that lots of books have very interesting questions and solutions. In some books, you can even predict what will happen next. I would tell them if there's a subject that you like, then you can find a book about that and learn more about it. I would tell them that it's just really fun. And my little sister, she really gets frustrated because when she reads books, she doesn't really know what the words mean. But she just figures them out, and it's fun to her. I would tell them if you're bored and you don't really know what to do, a book would be a fun way to just make you not bored. I tell them if you just read a little bit of a book and then don't like it. Just keep reading more, and then you'll be interested in it. I tell them that you can learn a lot from reading, and it's really relaxing, so you can just enjoy it. It's not just like learn things or like get your grades up. I tell them read a little bit, and it'll get addicting. Thanks to these children from Wasatch Elementary in Provo, Utah, for sharing why reading is important in their life. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.